Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. I'm tempted to start with Happy New Year, but the outlook for 2023 is sort of grim. Recession, inflation, uh, social and labor unrest, war in Europe, the ravages of climate, food insecurity, rising inequality. One casualty of that mess is likely to be the rule of law. Justice seems to take a beating when times are bad. Why is that? Is justice a luxury good? Why do commitments to equal treatment under the law seem so fragile? Sam Mueller has devoted his career to finding practical answers to those and other questions. He founded and today leads the Hague Institute for Innovation of Law, Hill for short. Welcome, Sam, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you, Alan. Happy to be here. Hill's tagline is user-friendly justice, and you and your colleagues talk a lot about people-centered justice. Let's start there. What is the problem that you and Hill are trying to solve? It's always, first of all, very uh, hard. I've learned to explain, uh, make it very easy what we do, because lawyers are trained to make things very difficult. But maybe I can uh, explain this by making a short detour to the health sector. Uh, For a long time in the health sector, uh, they thought that uh, if doctors kind of do what they think is best, that that's good for health. And they also thought that if you build lots of uh, hospitals and train doctors and nurses and ask people to go there, then that will be good for health. And what they learned in the health sector was that, um, first of all, uh, evidence-based working, data-driven working is good. It's good to know what kind of diseases are out there. It's good to know um, uh, what interventions work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And secondly, it's actually much smarter to build health around the lives of people rather than ask people to come to health all the time. So what they started doing, of course, uh, is redesigning public health systems to bring them to the neighborhoods, to the people, to where the problems are. And that's kind of what we're saying needs to happen in the justice sector. And not because we like it, but because we see that, uh, you know, generally speaking, only about a third of the people who have a justice problem in most countries get solution. So there is a huge delivery problem. And we're not going to solve that delivery problem by only building more courthouses, um, training more lawyers and judges. We, we need to find a way to get justice to people and businesses uh, who need that in their daily lives. And when I use the word justice, I'm not referring to social justice in general, but to just simply conflict prevention and conflict resolution. So that's what we mean with it. It seems to me that justice is about norms, access, and outcomes. Norms to a non-lawyer seems to be the easy part of the equation. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, signed in 1948, does a wonderful job of setting forth what it describes as, well, universal rights. But access and outcomes are a different story. And I think that's what you just said. It's about access. It's about outcomes. And that's where the equation breaks down. So, so two questions. Am I being too simplistic to assume that norms 
are widely accepted. And why is it so tough to obtain and sustain broad access and good justice outcomes? That is indeed a very good question. I would say that on the whole, norms may be the easy bit, but of course, norms need to work in practice. What we also see is that we have more and more complexity in our societies and more norms cause more friction uh, and always require more conflict resolution and prevention. And in fact, in the Netherlands, we have, for example, have had you know, a, a few uh, serious scandals around justice delivery over the last few years. And one of the uh, reasons for that, according to many, is the fact that parliament keeps adopting laws and piling law upon law upon law, creating all kinds of complexity uh, as a result of which uh, people and businesses lose their way. You have more conflict and it becomes more difficult. So even the norm bit isn't, isn't all that easy. Um, access uh, is, is indeed a serious issue. And I, and I would say there's a number of reasons for that. One is that we in the, in the legal sector haven't really had the um, behavioral economics revolution that uh, Tversky and Thaler led. In many ways, we still believe in the homo rationalis. I'll make it a bit simple, but if you know, publish the laws in the state journal, uh, you make them known to everybody and you say, you know, this is a court, you can go there, then it will work. And of course, humans aren't like that. Many people don't understand uh, the laws. They don't understand the, the rules. Uh, they don't understand the judgments. So, you know, th there's, there's this whole, whole issue around making, as we say, the law user-friendly. Secondly is that we really have a, a funny situation. I use this word very carefully, but the justice services marketplace, I've got to be very clear, I'm, I'm not a Thatcherite or a Reaganite saying we need to have the market everywhere, uh, but, but a functioning marketplace for justice services isn't, isn't really there. And I'll again make a little parallel with the health sector. In, in most of North Western Europe, and my, my, my wife is a general practitioner, so I see it every single day, um, you know, you've got a, a pretty interesting and quite healthy marketplace in the sense that you've got service providers of many different kinds, ranging from a surgeon to a GP, to all kinds, to social workers, to whatnot. They're all working on, in, in, in that marketplace. You've got access for everybody. Whether you're rich or poor, you can go there. You've got uh, good supervision to ensure that, on the whole, that the services that are rendered are good and that the education is good, that what the, what the medical people are, are producing uh, is good. And you've got a marketplace in which it is interesting to innovate uh, because pharmaceutical companies and, 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 and all kinds of businesses are constantly investing in the health sector to produce new things, and that makes it a very vibrant marketplace. Now, let me compare that with the justice marketplace or the legal marketplace. And again, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make the point, but you basically have two service providers, lawyers, law firms, and courts and judges. And uh, that's usually very densely regulated. And anybody outside that offering justice services you know, ha has trouble having access to the legal services market. The only delivery model or the mainly used delivery model are those, those courts and, and those lawyers. And people offering other delivery models for justice solutions 
find it very hard to get access. And lastly, we've worked a lot with innovators in the justice sector, and um, they find it very, very hard to get investment to grow and to really scale. Uh, and that's because this market is so rigid. So the access to the marketplace is also partly caused by the, by the way that the marketplace is organized. And that's one of the things that we try and work with governments on, and, and others are starting to do that as well, to change that. The last reason why I think, and that relates to outcomes, why access is difficult um, and why the marketplace probably is as it is, is that on the whole, justice systems are not held to account for outcomes. They're held to account for you know, the amount of judges there are, the amount of the, the, the size of the backlog, uh, the, the number of law firms. And again, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Um, it's not always that black and white. But if the marketplace would be, and, and the people who, or, or, and the organizations that deliver, also the governments that, that have services on that marketplace, if ministries of justice, judiciaries, law firms, and other service providers would be held much more to account to, for the amount of prevention and resolution they are able to organize, that would also change the way things work. So it's a combination of factors that, that lead to the situation where we are, I think. One of the remarkable things, to me at least, of your work and Hill's work is that you are active both in Western Europe and North America, as well as throughout Africa, Asia, Middle East, etc. Um, and as you were talking, I was thinking about whether what you were saying seems to apply more to the highest developed countries or, or not. And it strikes me that it may well be that innovation in the, in the justice system might be more doable in developing countries uh, than in developed countries. Is that, which would be a perverse but good outcome, is it easier to do stuff in Kenya or Uganda than it is in the yeah. Netherlands huh. or the United States? That is very, very stuff interesting. defined very precisely as innovations in the justice system. I suppose the boring lawyerly answer is it depends. Um, what, what you do see, and Kenya may be, may be a good example, you know, when in a country like Kenya, which is moving very fast towards, towards middle income, uh, when a country moves towards middle income, you start having a middle class. The middle class uh, wants to buy houses, takes out loans, buys, buys property, uh, leases cars. You know, you can see all the legal complexity uh, slowly happening as you get towards a higher middle class. And, and then that creates a need to, to change the justice system, to, to be able to adapt to the, as it were, the growing demand for it. So the urgency is often felt much more there. And we have worked with very impressive leaders who are able to cut through a lot of red tape and, and just get it done. Uh, at the same time, access to finance, of course, in those, in those environments is, can be more challenging. Uh, access to finance could be easier in, 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 in richer countries. My general experience has been that in, in some of the developed countries, like in the Netherlands, that, that there are so many interests at stake in the justice sector, that, that change can be a bit hard. In a country like Niger, where we have a really, really good cooperation with the Ministry of Justice, there is a little more scope maybe for a daring justice leader to say, let's go and try this and build a coalition and get it going. You talked about data 
And one of the differences between the justice system and the health system is that justice does not tend to collect a lot of data, but Hill does. And, and in fact, when we publish this, we'll include a link to the website because people really ought to see the kinds of data uh, that you do collect. Um, why, what do you do with that data? What does that data tell you? General question, specific question. Um, I noticed there were comparative surveys for Uganda in 2015 and Uganda in 2019. And between those two, over that four-year period, the percentage of people who took legal action rose from 60-some percent to 80%. And the percent of cases that were resolved went from 40 to 46%. Um, knowing absolutely nothing about Uganda, at least the legal system, um, the... I naively assume that means something good's going on, that there's some progress being made both in terms of access and outcomes, the two variables that you're within which you're working. Um, is that the right read? Is it the data that helps you understand that? Maybe if I could just swing back with an afterthought on your previous question, and, and that is just to say that I feel increasingly, uh, you know, we experience that we should move away from this idea that it's hugely different what happens in, in the Netherlands or what happens in, in many countries in Africa. The, the basic, many of these legal systems are, are organized in the same way and they play out in different environments. But this, this north-south thing, it, to a degree it's relevant, to a degree we, we really come across the same fundamentals wherever we work. And I think it's important to say that. Now to come back to the, to the data. Why do we collect the data? Why did we start doing that? We, we started doing it out of curiosity, just, just to say, you know, what, what do we know about the justice needs of people? Um, what do we know about their journeys to justice and where they work and where they don't work? What do we know about the outcomes they get and the impact that such a dispute, uh, such a conflict would, would have on them? And... Uh, we, by the way, didn't invent doing these kinds of services, but we, we have done them at a fairly, fairly large scale. And slowly it became uh, the language with which we talk to the, to the, to the, with, with the governments and the countries where we work. And it's a very effective language because you, you're not, and that when I was a UN official, I always found that a bit difficult before I, I worked for Hill. Uh, you know, very often as a UN official, I felt I was... A, not always talking evidence-based. B, I was always waving, you know, as a UN, I was always waving my finger at, 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 at a country for not doing something right. And when you collect data, and we always make sure that we do this together with the people from the country, it's their country, it's, it, these are their voices. We analyze the data together. Then it's just some, then it's the voices of the people of that country that are talking, that are sharing their experiences. And we, yeah, then that is a really good conversation starter about where you then need to focus your, your resources, which are often limited. Most ministries of justice, most judiciaries are underfunded, uh, overstretched, overworked. So it's really good to be able to focus. The data helps you formulate outcomes that you, that you will be held to account for and see whether you're, you're actually meeting them. And I always tell the politicians I talk to, you know, the, the data are also a fantastic way in the end to become very popular because you can show that something is moving uh, instead of, you know, generically 
talking about uh, about justice. And I think you're right. Uganda is is one country where you know, despite a lot of other things that you read in the in the newspaper, there's a, there's a committed group of people that that have you know in the leadership, and and it really goes across the board from. Um, the judiciary, all the all the way to 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 a number of really impressive civil society organisations that are starting to think in terms of outcomes and not in terms of outputs, and to define their their strategies and where they want to go in terms of outcomes and not in terms of outputs, and that's the change we want to see. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be. If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. I love the fact that when you and Hill talk about innovation, you're typically not talking about technology but rather evolution of systems of practices, of, of opportunities, of ways of doing things. That said, I can't imagine lots of ways that even simple ubiquitous technologies like cell phones uh, can be leveraged to improve access and outcomes. Uh, although at the same time, it is also even more obvious that technology creates whole new categories and opportunities for criminals uh, for and not just for criminals, but for conflict, for for tensions, um, new rights associated with that space, the digital space. Uh, as you think, and as you cope with disruptive technology, what do you most worry about? That's a good question. I'm much better at questions than answers, by the way. Yeah, I I I, I need to think this <laughs> think this through a little bit. But what what I see in our practice over the, all these years, is that generally technology offers more ways to improve than that it offers, you know, has all these worries. And there's a lot of people worrying about the worries of technology, and, and, and that's you know, very important, and I'm, I'm happy that they do. Uh, we've had some fascinating discussions over Christmas about chat GBT and, and, and what that chatbot means for the world and for us. I tried to ask it to write a legal brief uh, on a particular topic, and it did quite well. So, um, uh, yeah, there, there are all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of implications from, from using technology. But I'm sometimes also worried that all the worries about technology stop us from actually, you know, moving and thinking about, about innovations and where they could be better. Well-known, you know, kind of innovation that, that, that we work with, which, which is supported greatly by technology, is a web-based platform where you go to when you have, in the Netherlands, we've got one, there's a company that, that started at Hill and is now a separate company that makes real easy access for, for couples who, who want to separate, who, who are not in a fist fight, and, and who just want to get it done. And they can go online. They are helped through a, a very cleverly constructed conversation. Algorithms help them define common interests. If they want, they can call in people. They can call in the right people for the right kind of problems. Uh, they, as it were, have their own case management system to do this. Then they don't have to go to a court, uh, and this is very successful. So I just hope that the, the fears about technology 
uh, don't stop us from looking at the at the possibilities that it, that it gives. We've seen very interesting, you know, use of chatbots to help people who can't read or write understand what their rights are. They can call the chatbot. The chatbot explains basic things and could even give some advice on, on how to solve a, a particular problem. So the technology side, I think, is something that is, uh, you know, society as a whole is grappling with uh, in every single sector. And, and we just need to continue to make sure that we do that right. But sometimes I also feel it's used as a, maybe even as an excuse not to move ahead and use the technology that's out there to make things better. Well, and ChatGPT is a perfect example of uh, an evolving technology that has dramatic implications uh, that can be used and will be used both for good and evil. It's the nature of technology. And the question is whether you... Um, whether you practice, try to practice chastity, we don't touch any of this stuff, um, which, which will fail in the long run, as does chastity. Um, or you try to lever it into better outcomes at a faster pace than the bad guys can lever it into bad outcomes, for sure. Uh, let's segue to Russia and Ukraine. The, the invasion has brought back in, in a real, in-your-face kind of way, the horrors of war to people who thought that war was a thing for history books. Um, but it's also begun a discussion of how you rebuild a country that has been devastated by war. Of course, there's been lots of countries devastated by war since the Great Wars, but not in Europe. So the conversation, by definition, will have a different kind of tenor, urgency, etc. cetera. Uh, most of that discussion so far has focused on thinking about the physical infrastructure that has been destroyed. But the country obviously will need all of the soft infrastructure that makes a society function as a society, nothing more important than a functioning justice system. Um, I don't know, because we've not talked about this, whether that's something you started to think about. But if you're asked, and I'm asking, uh, what advice would you give the Ukrainians when they start thinking about how to build almost from scratch, given what's happened, a new justice system? We held, it's already about five years ago, we held uh, with, with a number of artists a, a number of conversations about the future of courts. And I remember, uh, and, and there were some young people there, and, and I remember at one point a group saying, um, you know, if, if there were no courtrooms at all, um, and we, we wanted to build conflict resolution uh, systems, we would build websites and not courts. But of course, you know, I, I think you always need a physical space for courts but uh, and for dispute resolution. But just to give you an idea, I think Ukraine would have the possibility, and we've, we, you know, we're talking about that in, in house as well, at almost to leapfrog a lot of things. But justice systems are also a reflection deeply about how a society deals with conflict, how a society talks, what societies find important. So there's a deeper layer behind that. But I would say to Ukraine, and, um, you know, it's really important what's happening now, looking at the, the war crimes, documenting them, and, and et cetera, et cetera. A lot of effort is going into that. Uh, I hope they also spend, uh, you know, an effort in thinking about and modernizing the, the, what I call the mundane justice of every day of people and SMEs that need to be organized. And I don't have any data at this moment, but I have, you know, we have been thinking, my God. How many, how many inheritance disputes are there with, with people that have died 
uh, that need to be resolved? How many land disputes? How many issues are there around destroyed houses and who owns them and, and where to live? Uh, destroyed companies? I mean, there must be countless, countless, countless legal uh, problems piling up with only a certain capacity to, to deal with them. Uh, yeah, I hope when the time comes, you know, we could be also part of trying to leapfrog. The interesting thing about Ukraine is we've worked there before. Uh, be- before the war, we were quite active there. It's it's an incredibly tech-savvy society. So there's, there's really smart, very clever uh, people, young people over there doing amazing stuff. I remember a conversation with a guy who was playing around with Bitcoin and uh, had devised a way to create a, a legal entity. He had a company that wasn't based on any bylaws, but was based on... Uh, I used the wrong word, not Bitcoins, was based on um, on the blockchain. So he'd, he'd, he'd created a, a, a legal structure without any law, uh, only through through block, blockchain. And I, and I felt I was, that was Ukraine. I was looking into the future when I saw that. You mentioned the war crimes investigations. I sus- and that, that is a smartphone. That's a consequence of the smartphone. No war in the past that I know of have we had the same real-time documentation of what happens in every war, which are war crimes. Um, And clearly there's a huge push in Ukraine, in Europe, that there will be a war crime tribunal. Something will happen with all these war crimes. Um, And I wonder two things. One, I wonder if that takes priority. Will these other, I think, more important issues in terms of Ukraine's future get resolved? And two... I wonder if the focus on war crimes uh, isn't going to suck the air out of lots of other things that, that should be done and become the, this war will end someday. And if the most important thing then is to try the criminals, which whatever that means in practice, um, I understand the demand for justice, but I wonder if it's the most important thing that ought to dominate there's a question in there somewhere, I suspect, but... No, there is. My, my relationship with that question is a tough one in which I have these eternal struggles. As you know, I was very much involved in setting up the, the International Criminal Court. I worked for the ISIS, for the Yugoslav Tribunal. And I've tried to really understand the issue of war crimes trials also maybe th- yeah, through the eyes of, of my own family. Both my mother and father suffered in the war. And, you know, I tried to look, look through, through their eyes and especially my dad, h- how important was Nuremberg for him uh, in, in, at the end of his life, he owned a Volkswagen, uh, even though I was, I was raised um, very anti-German uh, when I was young. So what happened there and how important was Nuremberg in, in, in making, that, making that happen? And I, I sometimes feel we make it maybe, but I don't have the truth here, but we make it too simple. We think that if, if we have these tribunals, then there'll, there'll be some easier road to peace and to rebuilding. Um, and I'm not sure about that. I really think that um, the road to peace and rebuilding and cohesive societies is, is much more complex than, than war crimes trials. And sometimes um, war crimes trials could also be a symbol uh, that, uh, that is used uh, by, by, by countries, uh, either countries themselves or by the international community to show that they're actually doing something. But, but it takes much more uh, to, to, to get back to peaceful and inclusive societies. And, and that, to me, 
is always the goal. I, I really like the wording that was used. This is Sustainable Development Goal 16. Uh, it is about peaceful and inclusive societies. That, that's what we, what we want to rebuild. And one of the things that led me at the time also to, to really want to set up something like Hill, even though when I started, I had no idea we would end up where we are now, was, was, was also an, ex, you know, an experience I had in, in after a visit to the DRC um, where, I, where I was really wondering, okay, so we're doing all these war crimes trials, but all around me, I see people who've been kicked off their land who don't care about war crimes trials. They want their house back. They, they want the inheritance sorted. They want to know, you know, whether that piece of properties is theirs or not. And then they want to move on. That's a really urgent need they have, they have as well. And who's taking care of that? So, uh, yeah, I, I guess my answer is let's not make it too simple. And I hope that in Ukraine uh, and in all other countries where there is war, there is on the one hand, you know, accountability for, for, for war crimes but there is also a way to, to deal with conflict resolution in everyday lives so people can rebuild and slowly move back towards being peaceful and inclusive. Even historically, there is a case that's worth thinking about. Yes, we had Nuremberg for the Nazis. We did not have an analog for the Japanese. Um, there are very few people that were put on trial by MacArthur. And he essentially said, now nah, we're going to focus on rebuilding society, not in solving the crimes of the past. And, and you have different outcomes, different, different processes. Let's, let's end by talking a little bit about culture. We've assumed through this conversation, starting with the Universal Declaration, that there are universal rights. Um, and indeed, in 1948, when that document was written, and everyone should have to reread it every now and then, uh, it really is a wonderful, wonderful document. But it's clear in geopolitical terms, we're moving in a different direction. Um, we just had the Qatar uh, FIFA World Cup, and we had all of the issues around um, LGBTQ rights, uh, clear conflict between Western and, 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 and local approaches to those issues. Um, and that's just one, women's rights, labor rights, you name it. Um, and we live in a world where at least a lot of countries are saying mm, our rights, our rules, our laws, uh, in contrast to the declarations in, in, the, in the Universal Declaration. How do you, and that's culture in part. It's other things too, but it's partly culture. And you work in dramatically different cultures. Bangladesh, Yemen are about as different as different can be from the Netherlands and the United States, never mind everything in between. Uh, how do you cope with culture? Or is culture the wrong word? I, I, I grant that, that I'm using culture in a very broad, ill-defined sense. What we've learned is that, uh, yeah, each, each, each environment is different. Each history is different. I think to myself, when I use the word justice in the Netherlands or I use the word justice in Kenya or justice in, in, in France, it means slightly different things. That's why we try to also make it more practical, as it were. Uh, and I come back to the data-driven, evidence-based uh, uh, approach that we have. Uh, people have justice problems around land. And within land, they have, you know, things like land encroachment, uh, neighbor disputes, land grabbing, 
um, you, you can start categorizing uh, also the, the types of justice problems that people have. And then the approach that we, we stand for is say, okay, what, what kind of outcomes would you want to organize around these, these particular land problems uh, or employment problems? And it's interesting when you, you know, in all our surveys and all the data we've collected, we, we about 70%, 60-70% of the justice problems that people have are about land, employment, family, small crime, neighbor disputes, sometimes money problems, sometimes uh, access to public services. And by, first of all, knowing what those problems are, and secondly, working towards outcomes and, and, and best practices to solve those problems, you can do that in every culture. And it doesn't mean to say that the approach in every culture is the same, but whether you're in Bangladesh, Yemen, or the Netherlands, when there is a family uh, dispute between a, a husband and a wife and they need to separate, Generally, the outcome that everybody wants is, is not that there's violence in that procedure, for example. Generally, what, you, what they want is, 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 is a good way to somehow live together, even though they, they're separating and, and that, that the children are well taken care of. So you can start working with these outcomes and you can start working with best practices to get these outcomes to people. You can start working about innovation for delivery models that actually get the interventions that work best to the people uh, that need it, and you can start working on, on an enabling environment uh, to make that happen. And that's a bit of a different approach than this more legalistic, philosophical question. Um, and that kind of works. And uh, justice practitioners in, in every country where we, where we work with uh, get it. And, and then there could be certain practices that are universal, that kind of work everywhere. There are certain practices that are more you know, local, and, and you can then make, you know, in your design, uh, in the way you work, you can adapt that. One thing that we do know, and we see this particularly in, in you know, post-colonial settings, sometimes with my African friends, we laugh our heads off about the laws that were adopted in 17th century England or France that somehow find their, found their way into a lot of countries in Africa that, that are now being applied. Yeah, and, and have never really been renewed, have never been re-looked at, are not being innovated, they're just being applied. And, and then the, the excuse for them not working, yeah, people say it's culture. No, it's just they're probably not the right procedures for solving the problem that you want to solve. And let's get together and solve it. Well, you've just made the case for people-centered justice, outcome justice, uh, for what you guys are doing. Uh, thank you for this conversation. Uh, we'll come back. There, there's issues that we got to keep on talking about. And this war crime stuff, I want to I want to revisit when when we get further down the road, et cetera. Far more importantly, rebuilding Ukraine, I want to revisit. So thank you, Sam. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you, Alan. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.